So it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, I'll say a few words of introduction. Um, Lisa is the Distinguished Professor at Northeastern University. She holds various prestigious fellowships, including from the Guggenheim, the Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience. And she is a, a quite extraordinary um, scientist in the sense that she has both produced a very solid and large body of um, academic work, more than 240 peer-reviewed um, publications um, on effective neuroscience, um, narrowly, but also a broader body of work as well. But she has also done something which very few scientists are able to do well. Um, she has taken her work and um, communicated that more broadly to a wider population. So she has a TED talk that's been seen more than um, 6 million times. Um, and she has two books, which I think both of which have been really um, mainstream popular books that have taken complex psychological science and made it accessible um, to the to the pub to the general public how emotions were, were, are made was the first and the one that has just come out either this year or last year um, uh, seven and a half lessons about the brain which is going to be um, the topic that we um, are going to be talking about um, this evening um, lisa has um, the final thing i would say is what she's done is um, I, I love this expression of um, <clears throat> scientists who don't hug the intellectual shoreline she has taken some of the problems which many scientists regard as being really difficult problems and she has not only tackled them with her research program but she has tried to communicate them um, effectively to the general population one review which <laughs> certainly struck me when i saw it but i noticed it's also on her website is i think she's one of the only people who's produced a book on neuroscience which is recommended as um, beach reading holiday beach reading which i think is quite a compliment um, so um, we're going to transition now into um, some dialogue. And um, we're going to have, I guess, just a conversation about a whole range of issues. But Lisa, maybe I can just start by asking you, how did you get interested in what's your journey been with um, getting interested in psychological neuroscience? And Lisa is always in the in the modern world. There we, we have go. To start a conversation with, um, <laughs> please unmute. <laughs> I couldn't unmute myself oh, for a moment. And actually, it's in these moments when something this is only a small glitch, but I always try to remind myself it's just miraculous that we're all here together around the world. So when we have a glitch, it's just a, a small thing anyway. So thank you so much for for inviting me to chat with you today. Uh, it's a pleasure mm -hmm. to be here. So how did you first get interested, um, Lisa, in uh, psychological neuroscience? Tell us a bit about the story of how this has developed. Well, um, I started my graduate career really interested in clinical psychology. And the I was actually studying the nature of the self. And um, some of the measures that I was using were related to emotion and the measures weren't um, performing the way that they should. And um, I thought very, I, I had very naive idea about the nature of emotion um, uh, that I learned in introductory psychology and in my you know, in my undergraduate psychology courses that, you know, there were six, you know, plus or minus two um, categories of emotion, that they were universal, that you could read emotion in people's faces and in their bodies and probably also in their brains and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and I very quickly realized that this was not, even though the literature really presented emotions in this way, that, that actually isn't the data don't really support that view. And I just systematically went from, you know, starting with Darwin and facial expressions and just mm -hmm. systematically reviewed the literature in every domain and um, started doing research, meta-analyses, and then, you know, summaries of research, and then actually my own research, trying to understand the nature of emotion. So I left the self behind only to return to it later. But you know, the 
scientists were writing about one thing, you know, their introduction in their papers and their discussion sections in their papers would talk about these universal categories, um, almost like dharmas actually that, you know, uh, in the Abhidharma, almost like dharmas, ele basic elements of consciousness. And, but then when I would read the results sections and the method sections, they didn't actually match what was being summarized in the discussion. Mm -hmm. And this just led me on a journey to, I suppose you could say with a beginner's mind, I retrained in psychophysiology and then I retrained in neuroscience and um, uh, eventually in evolutionary and developmental neurobiology. Um, uh, and now I'm in the process of learning, uh, you know, <laughs> systems theory and engineering, um, but um, really on a quest to understand the nature of emotion, which turned out to be a really good um, flashlight for considering very, very basic questions about the mind, the brain, the body, uh, and the context uh, in, in which uh, minds uh, emerge from brains and bodies interacting with each other. And so it's, it's been a 30 year education for me. Um, and neuroscience was just really one small piece of that. Okay. I'm monitoring and in, in a dialogue that I have to just watch that I don't get too caught up because there's so much important ground we want to cover but I, I couldn't help notice what you said about Darwin and I just want to come back to Darwin because my senses from what you were saying is that Darwin was not somebody who had the introduction the discussion and the results mismatched that actually if I've understood you correctly Darwin was quite good at observing emotion in the species he was looking at. I mean, can you say a bit more about um, what you learned from Darwin and, and whether you've returned to that in some of your, your later thinking? Yeah, so I would say Darwin, um, Darwin was actually quite, Darwin made seminal, I, I, I don't have to say this, I mean, everyone knows that Darwin made seminal uh, uh, discoveries um, in uh, on the origin of species and one of the important discoveries that darwin made was about the nature of variation so mm -hmm. when you ask the average person well what was darwin's big contribution they'll say well you know that he um he wrote about natural selection and that's true but natural selection has to have something to select on and what it selects on is variation so what darwin one of darwin's most important insights um is that a, a biological category, um, in this case, he was talking about the spe you know, a species, is a collection of highly variable individuals um, where the variation is very, very meaningful in relation to the environment or the context in, in which the individual is living. And he's known uh, in biology as having led the charge to vanquish essentialism essentialism being the belief that a category of instances or individuals share some deep hidden maybe immutable unchanging essence or 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 kernel of um that makes them what they are so the idea would be that you know every instance of anger um shares some essence, maybe a, a set of neurons uh, in, in the brain that all humans share, that, that we share with other animals. Um, uh, and um, the, those neurons make every instance of anger what it is and, and, the, and gives the instances similarity. And he, in, in a sense, when it comes to biological categories, Darwin vanquished essentialism, you know. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, when it came to emotion, um, so Darwin, you know, a decade after writing on the origin of species, he wrote a book that's very popular in psychology called The Expression of the Emotion in Men and Animals. And in that book, um, Darwin was very undarwinian. He, he actually wrote a very essentialist book about emotion. He was actually very biased in a Western way um, in his observations about emotion. And I would say he failed to 
he failed to make a distinction that many people fail to make, which is to distinguish between their observation of a movement in an animal and the meaning of that movement. So mm -hmm. right now, for example, in our cultural context, you'll hear people talk about fear faces or anger faces or sad faces. Really what they mean is that um, someone is smiling or scowling or frowning. But you know, the data show that people in Western, well, I would say in urban cultural contexts, people scowl about 30% of the time when they're angry, which is more than chance. And that gets you, you know, a publication in a very good journal. But 70% of the time when people are angry, they don't scowl. They do something else that's meaningful with their face. And people also scowl when they're not angry. They scowl when they're concentrating really hard. They scowl when they have gas. They scowl when you tell them a bad joke. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, what's interesting about Darwin is that, you know, he's known for vanquishing essentialism in biology, but in, in the psychology of emotion, he reinforced essentialism. If you actually use the lessons of Darwin from On the Origin of Species and you apply them to understanding emotion, but really actually everything psychological, every psychological category, there are really important lessons there um, that uh, really change the way that we think about um, our psychological lives and, uh, and, and, um, and ourselves and each other. And that is very consistent in some ways with contemplative philosophy, the idea that, um, you know, for the most part, there are no essences um, and, uh, and the self isn't immutable and uh, you know, you aren't, you don't have some kernel of selfness that you carry with you everywhere you go, uh, uh, no matter what you do. Um, so At least I think I'm gonna... it's really interesting. I think Darwin's a really, really interesting in lesson, interesting lesson in how to do science in a sense. So for those of you who are interested in knowing more about Lisa's um, work about emotion, I would highly recommend her book, How Emotions Are Made, in which some of these ideas are explored in great detail. But I want to move us along to um, Lisa's most recent book, which is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, um, which um, I highly recommend people read. But if you're like me and have a leaning tower of Pisa next to your bed of books <laughs> to read, um, I'm going to ask Lisa whether she'd be willing to distill what the, the main thesis of the book for us all here. And maybe that will inspire you to move it from the bottom of your leaning tower of Pisa mm -hmm. to the top and read it. But what's the essential thesis, um, Lisa, of the book? Well, um, the, the essential, if, I don't know that there's an essential, there's an essential thesis, but the, the idea of the book really took hold uh, because in, in how emotions are made, there are some themes that are there, but they were not really, but, you know, it's a 300 page book and the, they weren't really necessarily brought forward really clearly. And um, I just was becoming very interested in the nature of the brain and what it tells us about human nature or natures. So can we, if we look at the most recent and most interesting um, innovations in neuroscience, does that actually revise um, our thoughts about ourselves as humans or what human nature really is or um, you know, what kind of humans we wanna be? And so, the book really is about dispelling a set of myths. Um, one myth is that your brain evolved for thinking, that, that your most, um, that the, the most evolutionarily advanced thing that your brain can do is think and be rational. And that, you know, this is the pinnacle of evolution because, you know, we're humans and we put ourselves at the pinnacle. We put ourselves at the top. Um, that's what most theories of evolution do. And um, that's just not right. Um, brains didn't evolve for thinking. They didn't evolve for seeing or feeling or hearing. They evolved to regulate bodies. And if you look at the evolution of the brain, if you look at the structure of the brain, what you can see is that 
Your brain's most important job is regulating the systems of your body and everything you think and feel and see and do is in the service of that regulation. Now, of course, we don't experience ourselves that way. We don't experience our own, um, you know, love and, you know, every hug we give, every um, insult we bear. We don't experience that as having anything to do with our bodies, um, but it turns out uh, that it does. And so when you look at the evolution and anatomy of the brain and you understand that the body is central in the brain's concerns, even if it doesn't make itself aware of that, um, lots of things start to make sense and lots of new questions start to open up. For example, um, why is it so important to focus on the breath? Like why does focusing on the breath actually bringing your attention to your and control, attentional control to your breath, why is that such a profound experience for people? Um, there are really good reasons for that biologically mm -hmm. uh, having to do with um, this central concern. And so there are seven and a half um, little chapters in this book. Each chapter was written. Um, it's a little bit like a choose your own adventure book. So every chapter is very small. It, it, you could read it on the beach. You could read it in the bathtub. You could read it on the tube. Um, and then there's an appendix with, with additional scientific information. And then there's a whole website with if you want to take a deep dive um, on about any of the information. So myths like we have a lizard brain kind of lurking, you know, in, uh, with animalistic urges um, that are controlled by our prodigious cerebral cortex, which is supposedly the home of rationality. That's a myth. The idea that we react to things in the world is also a myth. The brain turns out to be structured to predict, not to react, um, and so on and so forth. So say, can you say a bit more about both of those two things? One, let's go to the, 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 the last thing you said first. It's, it's, so the brain is, um, has evolved to predict, not react. Can you say a bit more about that? Sure. So I guess it links to what you were saying about the body as well, right? Yeah. So, um, so the, I guess the way to think about it is that um, your, your brain is, is trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull. And your brain is receiving sense data from the world through the sensory surfaces of your body, your, your retina, your cochlea, you know, and so on and so forth. So you have sensory information that's, that's uh, making its way to the brain. This sensory information is the outcome of some set of causes. So you hear a bang. What caused the bang? You need to know what caused the bang in order to know what to do about it. Is, was the bang backfiring of a car? Did somebody slam a door? If you're in the United States, is it a gunshot? What caused this bang will influence what the brain plans to do next. But you don't, you don't know what caused it. You only have evidence of the bang itself. This is what philosophers call an inverse problem. Um, similarly, if you feel a tug in your chest, that's the outcome of some cause, but what's the cause? Uh, is it indigestion? Is it anxiety? Is it, um, uh, you know, the beginnings of a heart attack? Your brain has to guess. And you, what your brain uses to guess is past experience. Your brain is basically, figuratively speaking, asking itself, well, the last time I was in a situation like this, with this sense data, what did I do next? What did I hear next? What did I see next? And it actually starts to change the firing of its own neurons to prepare to uh, control the body and prepare to experience uh, what, what it's predicting, what's going to happen next. And, um, this whole thing, all of this guessing is happening predictively based on your past experience. So in a very real way, you know, you're always using your past experience, your brain is using past experience to predict the immediate future, which becomes your present. And right. when you cultivate new experiences for yourself, you're essentially cultivating a past that will 
influence who you are in the future. Can I ask you to elaborate on two parts of what you've just said, which I think are probably interesting and important to the, to the audience for this particular podcast. Mm -hmm. The first is you talked about the brain in the black box being a receptor for sense information. And you, you named the senses that I think most of us are familiar with, you know, sight, hearing, taste. But actually, you write about the sense data being much broader and much deeper than that. It's not the, it's not the classical five senses. Can you say a bit more about that? Sure. So I guess the first thing I would say is that when scientists, when neuroscientists focus on, on um, the senses, they tend to focus primarily on what are called exteroceptive senses, meaning um, sight and sound and, and so on. But right now, each of us has a whole drama going on inside our own bodies that we are uh, largely unaware of. Your brain is always regulating the systems of your body, your heart, your lungs, um, your immune system, your endocrine system, your liver, your kidneys, and so on. And it's also these, um, these organs are sending sense data back to the brain, but we aren't wired to experience those sense data directly. And that's a really good thing, because if we were, we would never pay attention to anything outside our own skins. This is what philosophers call tragic embodiment, right? That, that there's such a drama going on inside. And for the most part, we only have access to that drama consciously when something goes wrong. Okay. Um, but in addition to that, our brains manufacture senses that we don't have sensory surfaces for. So for example, uh, we all, most, I mean, if you have a neurotypical brain, you can experience feeling wet. You sweat. If you go out in the rain, you can feel the drops of rain of water hitting your skin, but you have no wetness sensors in your skin. Your, your, the, your experience of wetness, the sensation of wetness is actually manufactured by your brain as a combination of temperature and touch. And um, so this helps us to understand that um, everything that you experience, every sense that you, every sensory experience that you have is actually being constructed in your brain, right? So when you feel wet, you don't feel it on your skin, you feel it in your brain. When you see something, you don't see in your eye, you see with your brain, you don't hear, you know, in your ears, you hear in your brain. And, and, um, uh, and the brain can combine sense data in interesting ways to create new, um, new sensory systems. So the other thing, thank you for that. The other thing I wanna just pick up from what you were saying earlier to elaborate on, which I think is a, again, a really important learning for, for, for us in the kind of world of um, practicing and teaching and researching mindfulness is this capacity for the brain to predict sometimes outside of awareness and sometimes before action. So you give the example in the book of, um, I have a glass of water, I have a drink, and all of a sudden my thirst has gone away. But you give the example that actually the water is still traveling down my throat before the thirst has gone away. So the brain has predicted the thirst going away. But I think that's a sort of very um, tractable example that you give. But can you give, say a bit more about the brains becoming so good at prediction that it does that beyond awareness and sometimes faster than we can, we, we're acting on it before we know that we're acting on it. Well, actually, Willem, what I would say is that for the most part, your brain is predicting outside of awareness. And uh, in fact, it, that's the norm of the way that brain function, the brain functions. And it's also always, almost always predicting um, your actions first. It's preparing your actions first outside of awareness without any feeling of agency or intention. Um, and then the sensory predictions are a consequence of those preparations for action. So, what your brain, if we were to freeze time right now, your brain has, is modeling the state of the body and the world. 
And based on that state, it's making a prediction about what changes have to happen inside the body to support whatever motor movements uh, are likely to, that would be the would be productive to to engage in, and then your brain predicts what you will feel and see and hear and smell and so on on the basis of those motor uh, preparations. And in fact, if you look at the at the circuitry, like the structure of the brain and the dynamics of the brain, what you can see is that the um, sensory predictions, we call them sensory inferences, that brain is inferring, it's guessing what, what sense data are about to arrive from the body and from the world. Those are actually literal copies of the, um, the signals that are being used to control the body. And so I would say it's, it's the majority of the time your brain is predicting without awareness, even when you feel like you're reacting, you, you know, um, uh, like in a, with a reflex, for the most part, what that is, is your brain making a prediction and um, executing the, uh, those movements without waiting um, to check whether the predictions are correct. So I think you're saying two really profound things there. The first is that most of this prediction is going on beyond awareness, but the other is that the brain is actually predicting what sense data is about to arrive before the sense data has actually arrived. Absolutely, and in yeah. fact, the way that the way that scientists think this works, and there's there's you know mounting evidence from at this point probably hundreds, if not thousands, of studies that when the brain, um, first the brain is making, uh, is preparing a set of um, signals to control the internal systems of the body to support movement. And then it's asking itself, well, you know, the last time I, I prepared these movements, what did I see next? What did I hear next? What did I feel next? And so on. And those are the brain literally changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare for incoming sense data that it's expecting in the next moment. And so, for example, if you ever, you've ever heard a song going through your head that, you know, that isn't really there, um, those are just like the same thing as predictions. If you mm -hmm. can imagine something in your mind's eye, like, a, you know, I often will talk about, you know, imagine an apple, like a Macintosh apple, uh, the kind that you would eat, you know, in your mind's eye, um, your ability to have that ghostly image um, is actually occurring because your brain is changing the firing of neurons in visual cortex. And we can see this and we certainly see it in our studies and, and um, there are lots of um, studies which document this now. And so the brain's waiting for this sense data to come in and it's using the sense data to determine whether the motor movements are correct. The, the predicted motor movements are the right ones to be doing right now. So if if I asked you to imagine a Macintosh apple, a red apple, and imagine holding it in your hand and looking at it and imagine what it feels like, imagine taking a bite. So you sink your teeth into the apple, you hear the crunch of the apple, maybe you taste the tartness of the tart sort of sweetness of the apple. If you have any kind of um, experience, no matter how faint, of holding the apple, tasting the apple, hearing the crunch, seeing the red, you know, and so on. Your brain is actually changing the firing of its own neurons and to prepare for those sense data. And if I were then to pull an apple out and hand it to you, if the sense data pretty much match your brain's guess, there, the sense data just confirm the firing of the neurons that's already occurred. And then the actions are released, the action plans are released and you grab the apple and you bite it and you chew. Um, what's interesting about this is if the predictions are correct, the sense data is only there to confirm the predictions, it doesn't make its way, the data don't make their way very far into the brain because the neurons are already firing in a way mm -hmm. to capture 
the predicted sense data. So it's the the sense data. The only time sense data actually make actually make its way really uh, into the core of the brain is when there has been a misprediction or what we call prediction error, and then the brain, you know, um, will take in that prediction error, which we have a fancy name for in science. We call it learning. That's what learning is. Um, it's when your brain predicts incorrectly or can't predict, and uh, it takes in new sense data that it didn't predict, or it notes the absence of sense data um, that was expected. And, um, and then it can update its uh, model, its store of knowledge, so that it can predict better the next time. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I feel like we could probably talk for hours. Um, but we've only got another um, 22 minutes. So I think what I would like to do is to just ask the audience, if you are beginning to think of some questions that you would like to put to Lisa, maybe just begin to formulate those. And in just a few moments, the chat will open and somebody from the team will just say the chat is open. And then maybe you can put the questions in there at that point. Um, but I'll just uh, look through my list of questions. We're not going to get through all, through all the ones that I wanted to and just maybe pick out the most important ones. I think I'll just um, segue on, Lisa, from your point about learning and ask you a question about um, mindfulness practice, meditation practice, contemplative practice, if you like. Um, and most of the people on this call will be mindfulness practitioners as well as teachers and researchers. What are some of the implications, do you think, from your work, from your book about how to practice mindfulness in a way that is most likely to facilitate learning. Learning towards a goal, I guess, of um, stability, of insight, of well-being, of being able to respond skillfully in the world. Well, I think, first of all, there's so much to say about that. It's hard to know where to start. But I guess one thing that I would say is that, um, that you are the architect of your experience. Your brain is constructing what you experience. It's not out there for you to, you know, the world, you don't detect things in the world. Your brain is constructing features based on what you've experienced in the past, plus the, the sense data that you're receiving in the, in the present. So you have much more control over uh, how your brain makes meaning of those sense data. And one thing that mindfulness meditation allows you to do is to practice um, the skill of, um, of making meaning differently. So an example that I often give is the following. In mindfulness meditation, as I understand it, um, you know, one, one potential goal, right, is to, in a sense, um, you might say deconstruct experience into the, its most basic elements. And, um, you know, so the example I would give is, um, okay, so here's a glass of water. And um, if I uh, wanna paint this glass of water, it's a three-dimensional object and render it on a two-dimensional canvas, if I just look at the glass and try to draw it on the canvas, I'm gonna end up with a pretty crappy looking drawing, a pretty crappy looking rendering. But if I deconstruct this glass of water into pieces of light, so there, there are pieces of yellow and green and blue and turquoise and so on. And if I take the little pieces of light and I deconstruct this object into these pieces, and then I paint the pieces on the canvas, what I end up with, or what you would end up with, is a pretty decent looking um, three-dimensional object rendered in two dimensions. I end up with a pretty crappy looking painting because I can't, <laughs> I'm a really crappy painter. But the point is that um, it's hard actually to, um, to, train your, for your brain to train itself to undo what it does naturally, which is to make meaning of these pieces of light as an object to act on. You have mm -hmm. to train yourself to do it and you have to practice doing it. 
And I would say the same thing is true of your everyday experience. The brain, your brain um, constructs that experience without making itself aware of what it's doing. It's, it's a master of deception in some ways, right? It makes you feel as if you're just detecting what you see and hear and you know that that's out there in the world for you to detect when in fact your brain's constructing it. And if you practice, you can actually get gain some flexibility in um, uh, deconstructing or constructing differently. So this is important, for example, uh, in chronic pain. Um, one of the things that, you know, helped me actually, I just had spinal surgery. I'm three months out of, uh, I guess, almost four months now and uh, having spinal surgery. And um, mindfulness meditation was extraordinarily useful because I was able to take pain and deconstruct it into its more basic parts. Um, and that is to strip away the distress and just be left with the discomfort, like picking apart, you know, that glass into pieces of light. And if you can do that, when you learn, you, so mindfulness meditation helps you learn to do that, you actually end up being much more in control and much more responsible actually for the actions and experiences that guide your life. Another example is, you know, you can, when someone judges you harshly or criticizes you, you can deconstruct that into bits and bits of electrical activity in somebody's brain. And all of a sudden, it doesn't feel so bad anymore. You've just changed the meaning of what those actions actually um, change their meaning. And so you, they, you experience them differently and you, um, and you act on them differently. Um, Willem, when you were giving the, when you were guiding um, people's um, uh, meditation, you um, were directing people to take certain sensory cues and bring them into the foreground and push others into the background. And that's another way that we can literally change the um, course of our predictions um, and what we experience without even moving our bodies, right? All we have to do is foreground certain sense data and background other sense data. And that actually serves to change the cascade of predictions that will happen next. So all of this really is, um, is about, um, you know, being the captain of your own ship as it were, when it comes to experience and action, you have much more control over your experiences than you might imagine. So this is a beautiful description of how um, in mindfulness practice, in contemplative practices, we can deconstruct our experience, see it, see how it's constructed, deconstructed and potentially constructed into different ways. You write about, and of course that makes sense for all of us in terms of our everyday life of how we make sense of criticism and the things that we, we, our brain is very good at predicting and also, you know, generalized anxiety, disorder, yeah. depression, all these kinds of conditions. But you, you use, you give some exceptions. And I, I wanted to ask you to say a bit more about those exceptions, because I think they're really interesting. You give two, and I'm, uh, you give several, but the two that I wanted to just ask you to speak to, one was um, autistic spectrum disorders, and the other is drug-induced states. And just how the brain's predictive system here might be operating in a slightly different way. Can I ask you to speak a bit to, to those two conditions, autistic spectrum disorders and drug-induced states? Sure, so one current line of thinking is that individuals um, with non-neurotypical brains who, uh, exper whose experience is consistent with um, autism spectrum um, categories, um, that their brains um, aren't predicting um, with the same degree of efficiency um, and abstraction as a neurotypical brain. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence to, to, to suggest that, um, that many of the symptoms that come along with a non-neurotypical um, brain 
actually in autism spectrum disorders, but actually in other disorders as well, what are called disorders, really they're just differences from neurotypicality, um, are um, difficulties with predicting. Um, and that means there are difficulties with regulating the body, internal bodily systems efficiently. And it also means that, you know, when, when a brain can't predict very well, there's an opportunity for learning. Learning is expensive metabolically, and it's often uncomfortable. It often is associated with an increase in arousal because um, when the brain is attempting to learn something new because it doesn't predict well, it, it, there are, um, it releases certain chemicals and there are certain physical changes that um, are experienced as arousal. The main way that we make sense of arousal is anxiety. And so one of the really interesting, um, scientifically interesting discoveries, and I would say, you know, one of the main sources of suffering um, in individuals who are on the spectrum is that they're highly anxious. And uh, really what's happening is that their brains aren't predicting particularly well, and they have high levels of arousal a lot of the time. But they, um, but we don't see evidence of that. What we don't, you know, just in the sense that right now I could be incredibly, have incredibly high levels of arousal, but you wouldn't necessarily see it on my face or hear it in my voice. Um, um, and so uh, when you start to think about, um, you know, the symptoms of um, autistic, uh, of, of people who have um, symptoms, symptoms on of people who are diagnosed as being on the spectrum, um, and you start to understand that it may have something that many of these symptoms may have something at their basis to do with not being able to reduce the ambiguity and um, and be very metabolically efficient in guiding meaning making and action, which is what prediction affords us. You end up having, I think, much more empathy uh, for people in the predicament, and you also um, may engage. You know, you, your your own behavior may actually change um, in with respect to them. And I think, oftentimes, it, it's it's also a lesson that um, even when there are misunderstandings between two people with neurotypical brains. Often what's happening is that there's a misprediction somewhere, right? We don't read each other's faces. We don't read each other's body language. There is no body language. That's just a misnomer. We move, we speak and we move our faces and our bodies and we guess at the meaning in other people's movements. We're always guessing. Um, so, we can guess wrong and we often do. Um, and those are mispredictions. And so I think that this is one, you know, it, it sort of allows us understanding where there are errors, whether it's because, you know, you're on the spectrum or because, you know, you, you get your brain is predicting, is misfired, it's mispredicted in a certain way, leads you to be maybe, you know, a little more humble than you might otherwise would um, in your ability, in your confidence that you can read people um, or know uh, with any kind of certainty what they feel uh, or what they're likely to do next. So that's one, that's one example. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to, um, to shift now to um, just fielding some of the questions, harvesting some of the questions that have come up. And my colleague, Claire Kelly, has kindly gone through the questions. I think there's quite a few and picked out the ones that um, she suggests I ask. So, so here's one, I'm just gonna, I've not prepared, so I'm just gonna read it out. Um, I'm not sure who it's from, but it was, um, it goes as follows. I was on the beach in the beautiful weather in Tenby on Saturday, explaining to my wife, my understanding of how her brain is a prediction machine and that her brain has a concept of what is expected on the beach. And so it is just filling her peripheral senses of what's going on with its own generic beach scenery predictions. By the way, as, as somebody who's been married for many years, that's just your first mistake right there. <laughs> but anyway, carrying on. Um, um, 
But then I noticed that we were both noticing a lot of details of what was going on around us and both in agreement that there was the reality we were both experiencing. So my question is, how do we get such synchrony in experience? Is the brain the main center or is there something beyond brain work and balance? What do you see as the contribution made by, made by information gathered by the vagus nerve? This person's cheekily asked three questions. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you so, just uh, yeah, so answer I think that, whatever you like. I think the main thing to understand here is that um, when, you're, when you're born, your brain is not finished, right? So an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that's waiting for wiring instructions from the world. And there are certain statistical regularities in the sense data that come from the world. Um, that is, there are packages of sense data that tend to recur with some uh, frequency. Similarly, this is also true um, with the sense data that re is received um, from your body. So for example, your brain is wired, literally wired to be able to, it's wired by the, you know, how wide apart your eyes are, the shape of your ears, the, um, the um, shape of your tongue and, uh, you know, um, it's wired by the sense data that are being received um, from the body continuously. And um, those are, those actually shape the formation and, and development of the brain. Um, and there are statistical regularities there. So um, we, we share, we in a given culture, well, we as hum humans on the planet share some of that, those statistical regularities, right? If we walk on two legs and uh, we are subject to gravity and uh, the you know, sun rises and it sets and so on and so forth. Some of those statistical regularities in the sense data that wire our brains, wire everybody's brain in a kind of a similar way. Um, in and then there are some cultural similarities, right? So if we grew up in, if we, if our uh, visual systems were wired in a culture where there were buildings and boxes and so on, then uh, we have depth perception um, and we have certain visual illusions that are literally wired into our brains, but they're wired by the environment that we were exposed to. And if you grew up in a culture where there were no boxes and no buildings and only, you know, round um, um, structures and so on and irregular structures, you would not have those visual illusions. And it, the, the brains are different because the statistics of the, um, the sensory statistics of the environment are different. So as I was saying before, you know, once you have a fully loaded brain, so to speak, you know, your brain is developed to be able to predict and that you're culturally competent in your own context. The sense data are there largely to confirm predictions or to modify them. And that means that, you know, your experience is constructed by your brain and your wife's experience is constructed by her brain, but the two of you have, you know, some similarities based on uh, the way your brains are wired and also the sense data that you're experiencing in the moment. Um, I think what's really interesting is that um, when we have synchrony in our predictions, um, that leads us, that consensus leads us to assume that, um, that what we're experiencing is um, that we're detecting something valid out there in the world, right? So humans forever have been um, substituting consensus, agreement, synchrony for um, validity, for, you know, the idea that if we, if you and I agree that we see something, it must really be there and we're really detecting it. Um, and there's, I don't have to tell you, uh, there's a comfort in that, but there's also an extreme danger in that. Um, uh, and um, I, I could say more about that, but we only have a few minutes left. So I'll just stop right there. So just in the last couple of minutes, just to, um, again, um, really recommend um, Lisa's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And I just want to do that in two concrete ways, because the two points that Lisa's just made are amplified in really interesting detail. So that 
piece about the way in which the, the, the human brain and the human sense organs have evolved over the course of evolution and how they actually develop from baby to adulthood is developed quite a lot in her book in a way that is really quite, to me, quite was quite surprising and really interesting and helped my um, understanding um, a lot. Um, I'm mindful we're coming up for the end of the time, but Lisa, is there any final words that you would want to say? And I, I, maybe I can just prime that a little bit. Is what are your hopes for this field and, of psychological neuroscience and how it might develop? Well, I think my hope, my hope for it, the field, um, is that it um, maybe take Darwin more seriously. I know that's kind of a funny thing to say, but I would say variation is the norm. Variation is the norm in the categories that we use, whether we're talking about categories of apples or categories of humans or categories of, doesn't matter, you know, brains categorize all the time. When your brain is asking itself, it doesn't ask itself, what are these sense data? It's asking itself, what are these like? What are these sense data like in my past? How are, what are they similar to? A bunch of things that are similar are a category. So your brain is basically constructing categories all the time. And there's a temptation to believe that just because you see something as you see things as similar in the moment that they actually have a deep similarity uh, embedded in them biologically, that's essentialism. And I think, um, I don't just think it's the average everyday person that has to understand that hope, you know, hopefully will understand that variation is real and important. Um, I think scientists have to understand this too. And that means a massive change in, in how scientists do research um, because scientists are usually looking for generalized like rules or you know, laws that apply to everyone and you know, that will apply to everyone regardless of context and circumstance. Um, and that's not really how the natural world works. So I think an increased appreciation for complexity, and here I don't just mean like complicated things, I mean complexity as in complexity of causation um, to, and variability and a steering away from simple kind of single, like simplified, you know, understanding of causation is what I hope for the field more generally. Um, I think what I hope the public will benefit from is understanding that um, just by the virtue of the way that our brains are wired and the way that they converse with our bodies and with the other brains and bodies that we are surrounded by, you know, that we are more responsible for our own reality and we're, we're more responsible for ourselves and we're more responsible for other people than we might know and that we might actually like. I mean, it, it's, we're social animals and we, um, we are the caretakers of each other's nervous system. So as much as your brain is contributing to the regulation of your body, it's also contributing to the regulation of other people's bodies in a very meaningful biological way. And so I think that once people have an appreciation of this, um, it might, it might prompt them to be, to just consider, you know, what kind of a person they want to be and what kind of impact they might want to have on other people. 